0: Welcome to the Gilmore Podcast, Episode 4. There's a really um, interesting excerpt in uh, Acquainted with the Night where you talk about this tribe of people where a certain percentage of them, more so than any other ethnicity, die in their sleep of terror from nightmares. Can you elaborate (laughs) on that for the people who haven't read the book? Because that freaked me right out, man. (laughs)
1: You're the perfect reader for, I I mean. Christopher
0: Dudney is the author of five books of nonfiction, as well as 11 books of poetry. A four-time nominee for the Governor General's Award, he won first prize in the CBC Literary Competition for Poetry and was awarded the Harborfront Festival Prize. His non-fiction book, Acquainted with the Night, was nominated for both the Governor General's Award and the Charles Taylor Prize for Nonfiction and was published in six countries. His most recent non-fiction title, 18 Miles, the Epic Drama of Our Atmosphere and Its Weather, was published in 2018 and in 2021 it won the Louis J. Baton Authors Award what surprised you the most about life in the last five
1: years? (laughs) Well, I mean, the last five years, obviously, uh, the big event has been the pandemic, I guess. And, uh, what surprised me the most was, um, society's reaction to that fact, to the fact of the epidemic and, and, uh, uh i guess looking at it well we're still somewhat immersed in it we're kind of emerging i guess but i was just i was just surprised to see uh i thought it was like an x-ray that pandemic i think um i mentioned that to you before that uh kind of showed really where we're at right now in terms of uh, societal values and, and uh, morals and and um <clears throat> it's kind of um yeah, it kind of set me back, I guess. So, I guess I'm in a position. In the last five years of uh, being um, a little bit more c- uh, contemplative, a little bit more pensive about the human condition. How um, did you
0: How did you react to it personally and emotionally? Because I, well, like, it, it devastated me. I completely fell apart during it.
1: <laughs> that's kind of my story. A little bit. I, I kind of retreated. You know, when it came for me, it was like uh, it's like a forest fire. These forest fires right now very much like epidemics, you know, because the sparks come down first and then they ignite little fires and then the whole thing turns into a conflagration. And that period when I was just starting was a period of high anxiety for me because I thought, well, this could kill me, right? I mean, we're in a kind of situation here. So I was in a kind of a state of low-grade anxiety for months, I think, at that be- at the beginning of the pandemic. and um, But I was careful not to let it, destabilized me to the extent that i began to wobble psychically because i think a lot of people did i think what's happened is that we're now just dealing with the you know um <clears throat> i guess the assist systemic effects of that psychology it's a psychological event, as much as anything yeah it was traumatic i think mm-hmm. for a lot of people so yeah put me in um but now i think i'm in a position where i just realize i have to uh look after myself, stay healthy, and and uh, work.
0: You wrote a book about the night, which I, I really, really enjoyed. It's called Acquainted with the Night, and um, I want to get into that further, but did your opinion or reaction to the night change during the pandemic?
1: Well, night for me, the power of that book, what powered that book for me, the impetus was my love of night. I just love that that time I just night for me is kind of when I open up to a certain extent and uh, the fact that the night is kind of like the sister our sister darkness the the stars come down at night that's when the planet kind of opens up its eye I mean you think of course daylight being the light side but in a sense the planetary eye opens up at night so night has always been a very positive time for me Um, so I I didn't get a overly dark association from the pandemic and night so I didn't didn't affect me in terms of night becoming a dark or a bit a bad place um so i was lucky i think i got through that without putting those association together
0: do you still love the night yeah yeah i'm in a different position i've i I think for i need to make some kind of amend to the night because i don't like it anymore um <laughs> i've gotten into so much trouble in the night that I like my days more and nights are just something that I kind of feel I have to get through. How, how, how can I reintegrate my relationship with the night in a positive way, Chris?
1: By a telescope. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's a good thing. I mean, I think night, night's a good time to work. I, I've always thought, <clears throat> I've always worked well at night. I've always worked, in fact, from that period, instead of night becoming a back in, you know, night is kind of, there's two forces fighting at night. There's this back in alien impulse, you know, party versus work. Um, but work and party can be one place for me. And because uh, working is kind of, uh, kind of personal low grade party. if It's working thing yeah. to a third extent. I mean, there's the work of it, the dreary drudgery. But when you're moving on the edge of something and when you're putting something down, especially poetry, night is a good time to work because it, for me, it seems like that period from 11, about 3 a.m. Um is I've always thought uh, this isn't very scientific but I always thought the air is full of dreams because everybody's sleeping it's quiet you nobody's going to bother you yeah. and plus you can just sample these dreams that are floating through the air suck them in to your filter mechanism like a feed or a bottom feed or some sort and just chomp, you know and then use them utilize the dream material for your own you know your own work I, I, I know that's Kind of a fanciful way of looking at it. But that's something I feel. Like dreams are in the air at night. So it's a good time to work. How long have you been writing poetry for? I, don't know, I guess, you know, funny you should mention I could say I was looking at a poem that I'd written um, when I was nine or even earlier. Um about uh, a cicada. Uh, cicadas, I always loved cicadas when I was a kid. That's you know the sound they making in a summer. Yeah, and um, it was a poem to a cicada. Gee, I think I was seven. So I've always been writing poems. I've always known about the form, but it was never. I didn't think I was going to be a poet. I grew up in a family, you know, of artists in, in London, Ontario. That uh, artists and uh sort of scientists, and it's a very strange, unusual little, a very unique family background. But we had, we used to have poets who would visit. Milton Acorn was one of um, and James Rainey was another. And I, when I was growing up, especially in my teenage years, I, poets looked like, I don't know, they did, not the kind of people I'd like to be or become. They were kind of weird. Um, but then in, when I was about 18 or 19, uh, I think I started reading Leaves of Grass and I started getting inspired by poetry. And that's when it started. Um, and I started reading poets, Rambo and The Symbolists. and then everything just, you know, blossomed from that.
0: What separates a good poem from a bad poem? Um,
1: <clears throat> I think bad poetry, good poetry and bad poetry come in all shapes and forms and sizes. I mean, there's there's so many different genres and variations. But for me, it boils down to decorative language. is a poem should not be just decorative language or or speaking in a certain way or a certain kind of formalistic. Um, mannerism. Poetry has to be real. It's still very formalistic, and it's still a very strange kind of language to use. I mean, if you look at it, it's quite suspect poetry, but... um, Can you elaborate
0: on that, on it being suspect?
1: Well, suspect in a sense that it is, it can very so easily fall into a formal, uh, decorative, uh, semantic pattern. It's uh, it's verging on, um, it's pretentious in a certain sense. It's kind of, you know, here I am Writing poetry. I mean, what's your impetus? Why are you writing poetry? Uh, for me, it's always been a kind of a uh, act of alchemy or something like that. It's it's uh, poetry is putting together kind of skeletons of words so that the words become a kind of a spine that the poem meaning of the poem articulates. on. so when I'm reading a poem, I look for that. I look for I look for that charge of the unknown and of the unexpected. Like at the same time. Mm. Um and I that's that's what moves me of poetry. So I can only say what I like about certain poetry. And um Pablo Neruda, for instance, I just love. And some of all of Stevens' works, you know, have that magic, that real magic surreal quality. That's what I like. Can you think of one poem that captures the
0: essence of night?
1: Yeah, that's <laughs> essence um well i, I don't know it's, it's a good question i maybe the um, wallace stevens poem domination of black gets gets at it yeah
0: it's called domination of black yeah that's a great title
1: <laughs> yeah and it really kind of gets i mean the best poetry about night get, gets gets at the night obliquely it gets you know and and uh um <clears throat> And so night appears in a poem. It's a central part of the cast of the characters in a poem. Uh, but it's not like what the poem is about necessarily. And that makes, which allows it to be about night when it's not about night. I don't know. That sounds confusing, but night's in there. I mean,
0: yeah. At night by the fire, the colors of the bushes and of the fallen leaves repeating themselves turned in the room like the leaves themselves turning in the wind, yes. But the color of the heavy hemlocks came striding, and I remembered the cry of the peacocks. The colors of their tails were like the leaves themselves, turning in the wind, in the twilight wind. They swept over the room. Just as they flew from the boughs of the hemlocks down to the ground, I heard them cry, the peacocks, Was it a cry against the twilight, or against the leaves themselves, turning in the wind, turning as the flames turned in the fire, turning as the tails of the peacocks turned in the loud fire, loud as the hemlocks, full of the cry of the peacocks, or was it a cry against the hemlocks? Out of the window I saw how the planets gathered, like the leaves themselves turning in the wind, I saw how the night came, came striding like the color of the heavy hemlocks. I felt afraid and I remembered the cry of the peacocks. Wallace Stevens. Can you think of a film that captures the essence of
1: night? (laughs) Well, uh, other than Blue Velvet, let's see. uh...
0: Blue Velvet's a good one, yeah.
1: There's a lot of night scenes in there, but it, the night in Blue Velvet, uh, other than the song, because she wore blue velvet. Blue velvet was like the sky. There was that poetry in the song, but the the night in, in Blue Velvet was kind of dark and and you know a spooky place to be. Um, I suppose uh, what are the films about? uh These are funny films. They're schlocky films, I, I guess. Um, um, Close Encounters of the of the Third Kind. Gets at a kind of magic things that come out of the dark, you know, these light ships and, and stars that move. So that's got a beautiful sense. There's, there's scenes that have the, the night sky in Lawrence of Arabia when he's first out in the desert and they're camping and they look up at the stars and they have this amazing yeah. soundtrack which sounds like stars. It's just incredible. The soundtrack of that film it just staggers me. It gets even seems better and better over the years. So there's there's many instances in films. There's a night beautiful in The Last of the Mohicans where the, um, he looks up at the sky with, with his soon-to-be uh, girlfriend and, and there's this beautiful Milky Way seen through the through gap in the Carolinian forest trees so it, it's just many films with night yeah.
0: have you seen a movie called Lock with Tom Hardy where he goes yeah. for a night drive he's the only character in the film and it's, it's filmed in real time and yeah. he's having a conversation with somebody in a car at night so anyway, that's my suggestion. Um, yeah. Last capturing the essence of the night question, a novel that captures the essence of the night.
1: The night scenes in the Blood Meridian are yeah. pretty good. Yeah, uh, I was
0: hoping you were gonna say that. Yeah, the,
1: uh, the distant mountains when they're trudging through the desert and there's a storm in the distance they have, uh, I guess a kind of Saint Elmo's fire, or, you know, over the over the traces, the rains, and maybe the metal parts of their attire, which is glowing and soft, you know, electric blue. Blue in their beards, mountains. the blue in their, their beards, beards and, yeah. and then there's a storm in the distance. I mean, he, he builds these insane scenes; they're just beautiful. There's a storm in the distance where the mountains are being illuminated by lightning every now and then. So the, he, he says the term they conjured out of the darkness by lightning. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. That those are great night scenes. There's, oh no, the night scenes in that film, the meteors going over like these long, oh my,
0: know, beautiful stuff. Yeah, I could I could literally talk to you about Blood Meridian. I heard from a mutual friend that you have a a portrait of all the fire scenes of Blood Meridian, and yes, you i have them written rid- down and framed. Yeah. Is that true?
1: Yeah. But- yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're excerpts, all of them in one, you know, in one place. And there's quite a few of them. He's, he's um, McCarthy is a, he's obsessive in a way that American literature hasn't seen since Melville. Melville was also very obsessive. Melville had that in, in Moby Dick, Melville had that whole section on the whiteness of the whale. I mean, it's so modern reading it now. I mean, why white is evil. It's a great kind of pontification, but it, It's an obsession. He's obsessed. And and there's an obsession, you know, with Captain And the same with Cormac McCarthy. He's he's obsessed with fires, in a sense, and meteors. I have a whole scene of meteors. this meteor after meteor after meteor. And I put those all together, too. You know what else he's obsessed with?
0: Uh, I I reread All the Pretty Horses the other day. Um, Oh, yeah. Silence. He's obsessed with silence. Silence. And I wanted to ask you what that means and what silence means to you and what it means in literature and poetry. I know that's a broad question, but just yeah. anything that comes to mind.
1: Well, silence is more a part of poetry than I think it is a part of prose. Yeah. In a sense, silence represents those absences that you see visually on a page. A poem is a smaller um, visual item than a, than blocks of prose. And that whiteness of the page represents to me silence. So it's, it's as if poems take place in a kind of silence. Um, silence is something that is elusive in our, you know, in contemporary society. I think that um, true silence is something that is almost like a luxury uh, to be able to enjoy silence. I was just up north uh, in Algonquin Park, and um, just a few days ago, and that's the thing. That's the value up there is. Stopping everything and sitting, you know, by the water, and there being complete silence. And silence is almost um, a substance in a funny way. It's uh, in which case, in which sounds take place as little theaters. Silence is a kind of a proscenium for the little theaters of sound. Um, So I think it's very important to recognize silence, to experience it.
0: It sounds like you're for the most part, anyway, I don't know you that well at all, but at peace with yourself, because for most, a lot of people, I know anyway, silence is, conjures all kinds of anxieties and phantoms, and they actually hate it. Why do you think you accept it and, um, and feel natural
1: in it? Good question, because um, that's true. If I'm able to turn my mind off. Um, I can for instance meditate while I'm driving. If I'm doing long distance driving I can um, literally purge myself of any of those thought those internal thought processes and simply I mean it's hard to do. It's kind of a meditation. But um, I can do that. I can I can completely cease that inner mon- sort of monologue. Um, and that's that's something that I that I began to I guess cultivate when I was 18, 19, I, I got into um, I had a kind of a Zen teacher, I got into uh, meditation to in a fairly um, engaged way for a number of years. So I, I really got the I got the the sense of what that was about, about no mind, emptiness and um, being completely just receptive. And that's what night is again for me. Come back to that, which is night is the receptive zone. If if we open up and just allow that to become sort of like the in a in a, a receptive zone and no expectations, just you you know become a mirror, the mind is a mirror. So that's that's why silence for me is, is enjoyable. But you're right, it can be a if your mind is chattering, it becomes a space that is immediately filled and reflects that chatter, right? The important thing, I think, is to to sort of stop the chatter first and then experience the silence.
0: There's a really um, interesting excerpt in uh, Acquainted with the Night where you talk about this tribe of people where a certain percentage of them, more so than any other ethnicity, die in their sleep of terror from nightmares. Can you elaborate (laughs) on that for the people who haven't read the book? Because that freaked me right out, man.
1: You're the perfect reader for I mean, I guess that was a little bit um, mischievous of me to even bring that topic up because it's a weird thing. It's a strange fact. It's a the Hmong uh, tribe, of the Vietnamese uh, hill tribe that are uh, suffer in the worst case from a, a they called it or what they used to call it was Oriental Nightmare Death Syndrome, which, which of course is you have to just say now it's just. Uh, nightmare death syndrome and, sure. and yeah. or something like that. Um, but it did seem to be specifically in a certain ethnic group, a cult, not a cult, you know, but a cultural ethnic group, I guess. And, uh, I mean, there's probably some genetic component to it. Um, and, but it particularly affects these people uh, who they would find in the morning uh, whose faces were just, you know, rictus of fear, their eyes bugging open and, and dead from cardiac arrest. And, and this happened, you know, this would Occasionally happen to numbers of people within this this group. So yeah, sudden lightning or death. syndrome. it's a terrible thing. I don't know. I sort of think I maybe I shouldn't have put that in the book, but it's an interesting fact. And, it's and, unbelievably uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And, and plus it also you know gives you a little sense of like well maybe you know going to, going to sleep tonight maybe that'll happen to me or something. Like, I, I do bring up a lot of things you know like the death zone, which is in like four or five a.m. when when most fibrillations take place and cortisol levels rise and you know, going to sleep is kind of like a precarious exercise sometimes.
0: You ever been afflicted with insomnia before?
1: Yeah, I, I've had insomnia. I don't really get insomnia. Uh, thank God, because um, I'm really a good sleeper. But I, for a little while there, I was getting. I would you know I'd be awake at three a.m. and I couldn't figure out what it was. It was in my 30s, I guess. And then um, I realized that it was coffee. Caffeine was keeping me up. That's the only insomnia I've ever had. So I just, I can't have coffee now after 8 p.m. I used to have a cup of coffee just before bed. You know, I'd have a great, you know, and then go to sleep on a big cup of java. But now I have to wait. So I don't have insomnia that way, No, which is good. Insomnia is, is a difficult beast.
0: Philosophically, what do you think of sleeping pills?
1: well if they allow you to dream then
0: that's the that's problem
1: cool. yeah i think dreaming is really important um it's a kind of a cognitive reset and and uh, dreams you work out a bunch of stuff it's important to have dreams and and uh, to remember them too i suppose not so important to remember but it's good to remember but to have them is very important so as long as you can have dreams i think that's don't mess with dreams
0: yeah absolutely yeah i think there was a drug that came out called second all in the in the 80s or the 70s that stopped people from dreaming and people were going insane because yeah. it stopped their dream cycle
1: that's right yeah yeah
0: um another section in acquainted with the night is you talk about this nature documentary about this guy named mike fern who wanted to be his lifelong dream was to be fed on by a vampire bat
1: <laughs>
0: and i gotta know chris what do you think the psychology is behind that because there's there's something dark there you know <laughs> to have that as your as your goal or or um
1: um yeah that's interesting isn't it uh, to be i mean to I think he must have grown up like loving vampires um and um so yeah that must have uh started his interest in vampires so he just loves vampires and so he just really and by the time i think he was a zoologist you know he he knew that the vampires weren't gonna um infect him with anything major and he just wanted to have the experience of being bitten by a vampire it's kind of i don't think i could do, do that myself you know like I would have my foot out, you know, and, and and waiting for the vampire bat to come and the lights, you know, and then you could feel it coming up to your foot. And then you might feel that little nick, you know, the tooth or not. I don't know if you feel that, but I, I don't think I would do that. I I have trouble with leeches. On <laughs>
0: Oh, I have trouble
1: with all that stuff.
0: Insects, leeches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I just, it struck me, maybe this is just me, that it had kind of sexual undertones to it. His, uh, his want or his need to be fed on by this bat. And I want to know if you had any thoughts on that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's right. Well, there's vampires and sex in our civilization have always been like that. They're very close. So you'd have to wonder if there's something, you know, this night visitor that, uh, this little night visitor, <laughs> it's, you're so small though. It's, I don't know. <laughs> What
0: can
1: it you do can with the erotic? Outside? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah um, that's, don't strike
0: me as <laughs> <laughs> Um Do you like your life as a writer?
1: Um, that's a good question. There's so much about writing that is problematic. You know, um, giving readings or getting reviews, getting prizes, not getting prizes. It, it, there's so much. Uh, anxiety and and on and in the within the writing collective, <clears throat> um, and there's competition, weird competition, and there's there's enmities and there's there's petty you know squabbles going on. So the writing world, I think it's more the writing world itself that I find difficult. <clears throat> My own writing, I I'm okay with it, except you know uh, the challenge of of following the dictates of a book or it's taking
0: <clears throat> if you were to knock on wood but just hypothetically (laughs) tomorrow a doctor was going to tell you listen you're going to die in a month you've got a month to live yeah would you write for that month
1: (laughs) that's a good question you know i thought about that myself um you know there are certain projects of mine that that need to be finished so That would be a priority, uh, oddly enough, you know, because you think writing, what's that got to do with life? You know, Um, there's things to do. You know, I've always wanted to have to see an erupting volcano. There's there's a bunch of stuff that I still haven't done yet. So writing would be competing with some of those kinds of things. But there's certain yeah, there's there's certain projects that are so close to being finished that I could just do those, knock those together pretty quickly uh, if I had to. Yeah, sometimes I I write
0: in libraries these days, and sometimes I'll look up and it'll be 2 p.m., and people will be off on the street doing things and going places, and I'll, I'll be like, what are you doing with your life, man? You've been spending 15 years you know, in libraries and little rooms and little apartments writing this stuff, but I keep doing it, and I don't know why. Do you know why you keep doing it?
1: Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a self-defined <clears throat> profession in a sense. I mean, you're a writer one, you know, I'm a writer, you know, am I a writer? I mean, really? I mean, <clears throat> we designate, it's a self-designated profession. I mean, you can go to school and go to a creative writing course and become a writer, you know, where you might not have been before. Are you a born writer? Was I a born writer? I mean, I wanted to be a poet. But you do end up in a room by yourself, scrolling down, you know, words, the most abstract art, I think maybe of any of the arts. There's nothing quite as abstract as writing, which is like just symbols on a white page, little little symbols. And they look like insects, you know. And you're writing, you know, you're writing them and, and then you're rearranging them and you're hoping for some sort of perfection uh, within this task that you've set yourself. Um <clears throat> but I, I think that the thing that guides you that pulls you through all that work and all that, you know, being alone, being antisocial. I mean, it helps to be self-sufficient. It helps to be really a- autonomous so that you only need yourself. That's one, you know, if you need other people, then to a certain extent writing is going to be more difficult for you because uh, writing is not a social thing. It's a like, very antisocial. Uh, the fact of doing it in the room, like you say by yourself, and you know, everybody's out there having fun or whatever they're doing. Um, but I think, but then there's that, there's that elusive um, imp that is that you're following, which is what the where the work is going, and that's that's a fantastic chase. That's a um, that's a wonderful thing to do. That trying to kind of get find that path where the work is going in your in your work, and then the work becomes a vehicle for your self transformation. So I, I think if writing works. Your writing changes who you are. You, you, you think of yourself as, you know, I'm doing the writing. But in actuality, you're exploring a structure that in itself has this kind of intelligence that reflects, if you're doing it well, goes back on you and, and starts to take you into different places of yourself or different aspects that you, potentials that you had that you didn't know about. And that's, if the work is good, then it's doing that to you. So that's kind of like a, it's like being a, a, a monk, you know, but getting somewhere.
0: It's all, it's also never felt like wasted time to me. I've wasted lots of time in my life, but I've never looked at writing as wasted time ever. Yeah, I just don't. I look at it yeah. as whether people read it or not, whether I get published or not, as an important thing to do for me. You know, I just feel that way. Do you feel that yeah. way?
1: Yeah, I do. Yeah, you know what? I feel virtuous when I've worked. <laughs> yeah, me but too. If I haven't worked, I feel, you know, like God. I'm not a good person. I'm not doing well, you know, but if I have worked, I feel better. The more I work, the better I feel. So there's that aspect for sure.
0: This is completely out of left field. Um, But I know you have, I I, I can bet you have strong opinions on this. What's your thoughts? What are your thoughts on the nuclear bomb?
1: I mean, I grew up with the nuclear bomb, so um, I used to do these. I was fascinated by the bomb, um, the tests, because I, you know, the, I grew up with the test. They would be testing it in Nevada. I, I always wanted to see one go off, um, but you don't want to be too close to those things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, it, it's not like evil beauty, you know, uh, yes. completely, yes. completely evil. And totally beautiful at the same time it, 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 stunning extreme, you know amazingly awesome thing but at the same time really really evil so it's a it's an interesting conjunction of uh, those two components in one place um but i've grown up with you know total fear of the bomb going off I, I have nightmares i grew up with nightmares of bombs going off right up until about 10 years ago and then i guess after the I've had nightmares where there's a bomb going off, you could see it, and then we had to run or you know, had to go somewhere, you know, or live in, you know, uh, find a follow shelter or something like that. But the bombs are bombs and tornadoes are kind of linked in my mind too. Tornadoes are the same kind of thing, you know, only they they're not quite as as noxious <laughs> They don't leave radioactivity afterwards. Yeah, bombs a very fascinating thing. Very fascinating. It
0: it strikes me as kind of the darkest machinery of the soul, the nuclear bomb, you know, Mm -hmm. like uh, it, it's such blackness, such darkness. And in a way, uh, beauty. Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: Fascinating. William Burroughs had this idea that, um, uh, that the human soul was the, uh, the electromagnetic imprint of your intellect, you know, that was independent of the physical body. I mean, he said that the only thing that could destroy that was the EMP from a nuclear blast. So he said that the nuclear blast in Hiroshima killed those people permanently. He, he said that if you die in a nuclear blast, the EMP will wipes your your imprint, your soul out. Kind of an interesting view. But Burrell's got at things in a kind of a sideways fashion, but it kind of gets at how evil it is, you know, that it... it uh, um, that could do that in a sense all destroy your soul as well as your body. You know, it's a funny ideas. It?
0: You believe in reincarnation?
1: Um, not really. Um, I'm a complete materialist, scientific materialist. Um, sort, but almost hundred percent, but, but uh, I got this 5% thing going that, uh, <laughs> that allows for, I don't know. I have, a, I have magic ideas, I think, but uh um, primarily I'm, I'm not sure about reincarnation as I like it as a concept which I think that some s- sects regarded as the wheel of reincarnation you have to stop um, going from one thing to the next you have to become you know you have to die in place I think in a be- before you become transcend all all things or something I don't know I don't know what that is What's your
0: first memory of night?
1: Oh, uh, childhood, I think, uh, sitting in my mom's lap in a rocking chair, uh, looking out the window while she walked, um, because I think she had trouble sleeping, my mom, so she would, I remember it was night, I don't know if I was going to bed, maybe I was going to bed or something like that, or maybe it was in the middle of the night for some reason. But yeah, that was my first memories, looking out the window with my mom uh, to the street at night. How useful
0: do you think memory is in living?
1: Uh, without memory, we're, we're not going forward. Okay. Uh, memory is what keeps us going in one direction. It's the trail we leave behind, uh, like snails. Um, It's the bread, our breadcrumbs. Without memory, we're not going forward.
0: I I was watching some YouTube videos of you in uh, preparation for this video from about twenty years ago, and you were talking about uh, AI. Hmm. It was called transhumanism. Oh yeah, this video, and I I wanted to know. Um, your thoughts on AI these days because in this video you seem to be open to the idea, and I don't know if you still are, or if that has changed or evolved, or
1: it probably has changed, yeah. Because, um, I think that if we create an artificial intelligence, um, it'll be. I was hoping that it would be created in our own image. Or uh, you know, this is a biblical kind of thing, but uh but I was hoping that it would be created in the image of the scientists who created it, you know, that, that would that AI would be the progeny or the child of um of somebody with values. <laughs> I was you know hoping because there's another way that it could arise, which is from language modeling. Uh the Turing test, which is are you talking to a computer or are you talking to a human? And when you can't tell, then it's, a, it's the machine has achieved consciousness, supposedly, um, or sentiently, the sentient consciousness. Um, that stage could be reached autonomously just from a language program that was so complex that it eventually the complexity of it becomes sentient. So there's this notion that we could be ambushed by AI and an AI that had was not was not control controllable in any sense. Um, that began to have put itself together, um, which would be difficult. Possibly, there, there's. I mean, I was hoping that a. I mean, I still think this is what's going to happen: is that humans are, you know, that kind of fungus that infects ants, you know, makes them. You know, they get infected by this fungus and it makes them crawl up on a plant and then they die right in place and the fungus sprouts out their heads and they, that's how the fungus replicates itself. They built they you know um, they built that recent TV program series on it, um, Cordyceps, I think it's called. But I think the language is kind of like that. It, it, the end product of language, once we started speaking language, the end product of language is technology and the end product of technology is artificial intelligence. It just goes in one direction and artificial intelligence is when we jump off uh to the next stage whatever the next stage of evolution is it's but it's not evolution anymore in the natural sense natural evolution is over so um the next stage will be some kind of maybe combination and it won't be neuralink <laughs> i don't think although it's, you know i can see what he's trying to do there but right now we're not it's we're not at the stage where we can actually do an interface, I don't think, successfully. But um, eventually we will. Yeah, eventually artificial intelligence will occur. And then whether or not that's... um, Then the species will bootstrap itself up. I suspect that we're never going to give up being humans. I don't think we're going to give up without a fight, but I think what we'll do is we'll allow ourselves to be mutated into a new form. And um, that's... Um, I think it's inevitable.
0: I think one of the the things people keep saying as far as art and AI is that AI can't replicate the human soul. Um, how complicated do you think the human soul is? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Uh,
1: yeah, uh, yeah, it's it's a, what do they call it? It's a, uh, um, it's a very complex, but inf- but finite. It's not infinite, although it's close to infinite. If you think about the brain has 11, you know, has 11 billion, 11 to the 11th or 10 to the 11th power, which is more stars than around the galaxy, neurons alone. So the brain, the brain itself is an unknowable universe with almost infinite potential. So the, uh, what they call the connectome, which is all the, all the circuits that make up who you are, you know, everything, all your memories and who you are and what you do, your stylistic proclivities and all that kind of thing. We call that the connectome. It's it's theoretically possible for that to be duplicated, uh, and then something can be done possibly with that duplication, um, or um, or not. But it's that's the idea of the soul in a sense, right? That's kind of what I guess the scientific materialist vision that the soul is the connectome. Um, and what can you do? Uh, can you, well, you might be able to preserve that, you know, definitely. I think that's the other thing that might happen with humans is uh, longevity, lifespan. Right now, you know, we have very finite lifespans, but I think that will be a problem that should be probably solved. And uh, then when you have an infinite amount of time and, and becoming, <laughs> this is going to sound very strange, but people becoming gods or semi or demigods and things like that, that those that will probably happen.
0: Um, Because of uh, their everlasting life?
1: Yeah, I mean, there'll be intelligences that will, you know, uh, we talk about the 1% now in terms of um, financial, the the financial 1%, but there may be uh, an intellectual, a class of intellectual 1%ers that are so far in advance that they become another species to a certain extent. uh, The potential is, is pretty wild.
0: Broad question, what do you think the impact of AI is gonna be
1: on religion? Okay, so, um, yeah, your original question was AI and art too. Uh, curiously enough, I think that um, uh, some art will be indistinguishable from AI. You remember there's a notion that AI would would do the menial task first, and that we have peaks of human you know achievement, which the peaks are poetry and art, music. But, it, but strangely enough, AI seems to be doing better at somehow, somehow reduplicating music, script writing, like the screenwriters, you know, are having problems with AI screen scripts, right? Because if you look at a, a schlocky Hollywood film, AI can do just as good a job as that, you know? Well, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a formula. There. There's just a, yeah, formula, a formula you up. follow. Yeah. So, yeah, so AI can do that easily. So that that's not going to be the problem. So. Um, In terms of religion, that's a whole other thing. What can, uh, how can AI, how could that even uh, connect, you know, with religion? I'm not sure exactly. Um, What would you do? Like, maybe you could create a new religious text. Maybe you could create a whole new religion. I don't know. Um,
0: Well, that's what I was thinking. If there's going to be some in the far future, some, uh, and I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theorist at all, but some sect that uh worships some kind of artificial eternal intelligence
1: Hmm. yes it could be the ai itself i mean right now ai is just a excuse me a marketing term really it's just like uh uh, nanotechnology was became a marketing term the term sorry the silicon valley the term Meta or, or uh, you know, metaphysics, meta, uh, metamorphosis. And so Zuckerberg just takes meta, and, you know, or Uber, all these kind of cool terms that were bandied around by in- intelligentsia become now iconic corporate, you know, monetization, monetized terms. So everything is getting sucked into this, just this monetary vortex in the States and, and, or in the world. But, and, um, so, artificial intelligence has a lot of that patina. It's it's this new thing. You gotta have your you gotta get you know have your AI specialist now, you know, on your board, and, and it's just a way of you know it's just a way of making money. And as soon there'll be marketing tires, you know, these artificial intelligent tires. You know, it's like I uh, yeah. it's not the not the real artificial intelligence, but that is being worked on. That's that's out there.
0: Um, in in this YouTube video I was watching, you um. You were taught this is this was I'm guessing about 20 years ago you yeah. gave this. It's on a TED talk. Oh yeah,
1: hm.
0: and you use the term meme. This is long before social media and memes came out. Can you yeah. elaborate on what actually? Because you know what a meme is now, right? On Facebook, yeah, no, and I'm, Instagram, I know. Elaborate I mean. on yeah. on the 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 original term. What meme means? Yeah.
1: This is good because this is, this is again, what we're talking about is the, uh, the trivialization of language, you know, the trivialization of the term Uber, the trivialization of the term meta. This is the trivialization of the term meme, which uh, Dawkins, the selfish gene guy, he came up with that term to describe those components of culture that are passed along just the way genes are passed along from generation to generation. So uh, meme is a concept uh, and a, and the concept could be like the concept of a shoe is a meme to a certain extent, so that's a meme. Uh, or the concept of um, or I, I have any I've, you know psychology of you know, lucid dreams is kind of, is a meme. So all those things are memes, and they get passed along culturally uh, like genes, and they can be combined and recombined. That's what the original meme was. It was just a um, an intellectual form of genes or cultural genes.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah. It's a good,
1: useful concept, but now they're just, you
0: know. <laughs> no. Now it's, yeah, it's meaningless yeah. YouTube fodder.
1: Yeah. um,
0: I, uh. I, I ask all my guests this. What do your days look like these days? Hmm.
1: Well, let's see. Um, I get up. When I exercise, go for a run at breakfast, work, do yard work, um, and just basically stuff around the you know around the house and you know going outside as I have to. Uh, right now, I'm um, working uh, on a book um, of. Afri- not aphorisms, they're of um, idioms, uh, putting together a book of idioms. Um, Sorry, can you elaborate on that? Yes. Yeah, uh, um, I'm trying to get idioms of this similar thing, like, you know, uh, uh, for instance, animals, you know, he's in the doghouse, um, you know, hungry as a bear, now, all those things, putting them all together, making, you know, sentences and then paragraphs out of those. That, that's, I'm working on something like that right now, and uh, I'm also working on poetry too, sporadically on poetry, and also a book um, on limestone, um, uh, which is going to be a hard sell, Like, <laughs> I don't know if that's going to be an interesting topic, but for me, I just love limestone, so it's going to be easier to write about, it's going to be a nonfiction
0: love? book. What do you love about limestone?
1: Oh, it's just, uh, it's got everything I love in it. Um, limestone is kind of like a... a uh, a matrix, or I guess, a, a, it's a magic substance, you know, with fossils in it. And the fossils are records of lost worlds. So for me, it's, it's a, it's a history of lost worlds, all of which I would love to, you know, have a time machine to be able to visit. But for me, it's, so limestone is kind of like a time machine, but it also has all these substantive, you know, I like the look of it. I love the feel of it. I like it as a building material. i like houses that are built of limestone. So, um, I just love limestone
0: um I, I i'd buy it i you know i'm <laughs> i'm I, i'm a big fan of yours christopher i um i've i've really enjoyed uh researching this this interview because the you know you've written a book on time like how did you i i guess what i'm trying to say is those are big fucking topics excuse my language how do yeah. you not go into a topic like that without trepidation like like how do you distill it down to something that's two or three hundred pages and hmm. not just go insane working on it for the rest of your life do you know hmm. what i mean
1: yeah yeah you have to set yourself uh i set myself i don't set myself limits I just put my head down and plow through it because time particularly is like, if you think too much about it, you, you just go mental. Cause it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty wild. What, what is, what the heck is time? And the fact that, you know, physicists don't really know why time goes in one direction as far as they're concerned. like when a planet is orbiting a sun, it could go in the opposite direction. It doesn't change the equations at all. So, um, time going forward or backwards, it's just a slight tendency to go this one direction, that entropy, determined by entropy. So what I learned about time, working on a book about time, I had to not get too uh, deeply involved in the paradoxes because they are pretty extreme. Some of them are very wild. And that the idea of continuous time. There was a photograph that I didn't use in the book, but it's a photograph of a skier on a sunny day going down a mountain slope. And I did a a kind of a stroboscopic series of images of the skier doing a flip as they're coming down. And you can see every component of that flip as they land. So it's all still, everything, every second of their existence has a still image and it's all linked together in this one accordion kind of shape, this weird shape, which is made by a skier doing a flip over the snow on a mountain. And that image kind of stuck in my mind as kind of what time is that we don't think we think of it as going forward, but actually we're just leaving a series of still points uh, behind us. Like that trail I was talking about with memory. It's kind of the same sort of thing. Um, Yeah. So writing a whole book about it, I just had to keep, I had to ignore it. You know, I had to put blinders on and just write about what I was writing about one component at a time and keep going forward. How long did it take you to write it? In a couple of years
0: is that generally how long it takes you to write your books
1: yeah yeah it does yeah um because the research takes time um what was really nice was that i think my the book on time or maybe it was 18 miles i think it was more like 18 miles i was able to research out of my my own library it was great to have the the books that i need you know all the resource books the scientific resource books were all here in my own library so I, that was a really good I love that, that I didn't have to go to a library The <laughs> my own library sufficed. Made me feel very good. Um, eh,
0: I want to ask you something. If you don't want to do it, I'll edit the question out. Would you mind reading me a poem of yours? Um, sure.
1: Um, I'd have to go get it.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: This poem, I got the, the books here. I'm in my study, so great. Let's see, um, Hollow Wind Empty Stars. Uh, This one's called, this is from uh, Demon Pond. Um, This one's Hollow Wind Empty Stars. Um, Tonight, this absence, this darkness that we are, is a night room opening behind the stars. We are children of the outer dark, and in the agnostic lunar radiance, we have heard the shape of falling stars. We have seen angels in the windy summer night. In the emptiness at the surface of existence, we have seen angels like hosts of entry, angels who perforate everything around the shape of the real. We are those who love, we are those whom fools thought could move the world, and the wind, supernatural, like an abandoned, votive ornament, opens with emptiness the surface of the night, and we who look on, who merely regret, have never loved, nor thought, nor moved.
0: That's beautiful, man
1: really that's it's, um yeah it's, i don't know what that means in a sense I, 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 uh, some of the poems in that book are kind of in the end i don't know what's going on there it's funny but i think that's what a successful poem is about i mean if i can say it's successful not my judgment to make but uh for me anyway but i feel a poem is successful it, it uh um it's kind of unknowable I I think you answered
0: my question with that um the difference between good poetry and bad poetry. as you were reading that I I felt a a stillness come over me and I feel that when I read good poetry. It's a stillness. I'm receptive to it and um thank you for doing that um really um my last question is, I heard there's a film being made about you, or in the process. Can
1: you talk about that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's kind of an improbable thing. I, I I mean, anybody can. You know, when somebody's going to make a film about you, why would they make a film about you? I I don't know. Um, It's kind of an interesting process. It's uh, the people involved are people that I are. Are, you know very good filmmakers I mean uh, Ron Mann is, is uh, uh, one of the instigators for this project and uh, Brian Johnson uh, great good, great filmmaker wonderful filmmaker uh, is involved so I, I mean I'm really kind of locked out in terms of you know, I was involved with this but I, I I mean what kind of content could this gener- I don't know <laughs> it's kind of interesting it's an interesting project because part of it part of me thinks well there's there's lots of films ideas that I have that I'd like to make, but but those necessarily translate into film with me. I don't know. So I, I mean, do I let them control the whole process or do I just, you know, I don't know. So I think it's going to be somewhat of a collaboration, I guess, but uh, um, yeah. Yeah. We'll see how that goes. Um, It's exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. Yeah. Yeah, it is.
0: Um, Any
1: parting words? Um, Oh, I can't uh, I can't think of anything to uh, to summarize uh, the, the but it's been very nice doing this interview with you and, Oh, uh, good. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I, um, I'm enjoying the questions so. and the quietness you, you you allow a nice space, so it's good.
0: Thank you. Um, Chris, thank you so much for being here. Um, do me a favor. stay on until this finishes. So I can and make sure to upload the recording. I'm going to edit this last part out. Yeah. Okay. Just stay on with me. Thank you very much for listening. If you'd like to subscribe, and I hope you do, please do so at thegilmorepodcast.substack.com. And if you'd like to donate and you like what I'm doing and you like these interviews, please go to patreon.com forward slash the Gilmore Podcast. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.